I'm just, I'm in a state of sorrow. Tell in me agony, why, if you will. Talk to me. Zach, Welcome to my office. Time, there was a time and place. Also, guys, we're on Zoom. So yeah. as you can tell, there might be a little up. bit of uh, <laughs> gaps in between awesome. our phrases. Yeah, our team chemistry is, it's hard to go on Zoom, guys. But we'll it's track tough. onward. But it only adds to the sadness that I feel. And the sadness that I feel is because, guys, I am no longer your favorite Lululemon employee. How, how long did you work at Lulu? Zach, I started working at Lululemon in October of 2019. So for before, many years. I mean, faithfully, before you even knew what COVID was. That's, yeah. Before you have ever True. owned a face mask, I would say an employee. True. Unless you're a registered nurse. You might have owned a mask, but yeah, well, I'm saying you specifically. Oh yeah. I didn't yeah. own a mask. My friend. Yes. My brother. But for many years, <laughs> yeah. you grazed the halls of North park mall in Dallas, Texas, as every listeners on here, favorite Lululemon employee handing out discounts. Like they were cookies from great American cookie. So what are we going to do now that you're gone? And yeah, Zach, here's the thing. They are actually canceling that discount that I was able to give out fully, anyway, fully. They're canceling it. August 1, it will no longer exist. Wow. So the I Love You Man discount at Lulu's gone. Yeah. July is the last month available. Re and why? What's the reasoning? So I think that it has something to do. So originally they started it and it's not we anymore. It's they because I don't work there anymore, Zach. So it's they. Uh, I see. They. It's them. They did this. They <laughs> started the I Love You Man discount so that they could hopefully grow the men's side of the brand. And mm. it's working. Now, yeah. men's sales is about 30%. And yeah, they've seen that now it's not worth it to them anymore. And they are rather progressive in their views. And so there's some <laughs> things with gender that they are talking about as well, which I simply don't agree with. But it's all right. I'm just yeah. sad to see the discount go. Yeah. And they, I'm sure they're sad to see you go. You're a salesman, Coop. You can sell it. I mean, it. Zach, this is a quote. From my my one of my assistant managers, my yeah. my parents were there one day shopping. My dad had to get him some new pants. Got to because uh, he's actually lost some weight. Shout out Shane McCullough <laughs> and Tanya McCullough, both of them. Look at that summer summer body from Clam I mean, Camp I mean, Gladiator. It's hot, it's hot dad summer is what yeah. it is. <laughs> but it no, both my parents have been putting in some work on that uh, diet, so it's going great. So my dad's getting some new pants. It's exciting times, and. uh my assistant manager walks up to my mom. She goes, are you Cooper's mom? Just kind of like, whoa. It's like when you get called Cooper Allen or Zachary right. James. You know what I mean? Exposed, guys. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> but she was like, are you Cooper's mom? And she was like, I am. And she was like, well, I need you to know that Cooper McCullough is the my favorite hire I've ever made at Lululemon. Wow. High praise. And I was like, I mean, that is that is a miracle by God's grace. And here's why. Is because Zach, when I work, I try to work as unto the Lord, and not mm. many people at Lululemon North Park Mall right. work as unto the Lord because they do not fear God. Simply put, which I think in your time in college and as you started working there post grad as well, you would say a huge blessing in your life is working there because of what you learned Amazing. by being on mission through your work. Yes, yes. This is this is a shameless plug. Let me preach for a second. Someone <laughs> get the pulpit. Is that if you work in the church or if you work and uh, you're getting your biblical studies degree or whatever you're in a christian bubble you have to escape you have to get out. create some area where you have crossover of non-believers because yeah. you forget that the world is so dark and guys it's literally wartime mentality there's a real enemy he hates you he wants everything to go poorly for you he wants you to be stolen killed and destroyed 
but we serve a real God who has defeated death. And so we get to be on mission, snatching souls out of the fire as Jude 23, I think talks about twin. And so that just freaking fires me up. Mm. It's, it's, so it's a one chapter. It's a one chapter. Yeah. Verse yeah, 23. It's a, I mean, it's a one of, chapter book. Yeah, 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 yeah. Verse 23 of the only chapter of Jude. I think you'll have to fact check me, but I did go through the Watermark Institute. Hashtag, I know my Bible. That's part of the, or it might be right before, it might be Jude 24 and 25, the doxology, the glory words that are beautiful. Yes, they are beautiful. And guys, I don't want to dwell here on the sorrow, but I do want to, I do have something else that I want to mention. All right. And that is that I am currently in Zach's hometown, Branson, Missouri. That's right. Come on. And I had an encounter with a woman, a, lo- a local, a local woman, Zach, you know her very well. Okay. And she's your mom. Oh, and boy. she has had enough of our toilet paper shenanigans. <laughs> I, we had a reconciliation conversation where mm. she's like, hey, I think the joke has been worn out. <laughs> and I don't even, she goes, she goes, she's like, I don't even care how the toilet paper goes, really. She's like, I just well, put it on there. Yeah, well, here's and, the thing. She's realized she's wrong, and she, she's tired of hearing about wow. it. And see, that's the thing. I didn't know that. I probably wouldn't have even said that on i probably will regret that yeah <laughs> we will get a text love you and that was unscripted and that was your own son's fault <laughs> well, this whole thing was unscripted yeah for context my mom has been known to put the toilet paper on the roll thing beside the toilet yeah, back if you've been following us for literally any amount of time you know you've probably heard seven episodes about toilet paper <laughs> it's a passion zach and i have with it about is. starting a business called zach and coops rolls for your bumper Never. that's an llc and we'll, we'll get that yeah, out. We've yeah, never talked yeah. about that but it's good to know that fans out <laughs> there namely my mom think the joke has died and we need to move yeah on. but i think we'll probably i mean in good taste maybe keep the keep it rolling if you will that's a toilet paper roll joke <laughs> that was good that was real nice i just uh, don't spe- think i'm ready to wipe the slate clean you know what i mean i do know what you mean you got any others zach you got any you're, you, you're getting embarrassed you're getting flushed in the face are you all right over there welcome to the next generation leader podcast where we believe great leaders are listeners especially during their youth good leaders learn from their successes and mistakes but great leaders learn from the successes and mistakes of those who go before them i'm your host zach funwork here with my co-host Cooper McCullough, not the your rug, favorite well, Lululemon one employee anymore. The one, I know. The one, what wonder? Wonder? The, the, the one roll wonder. One roll. Good, good. I was good. getting a little flushed, so we had to move from that intro into mm-hmm. an episode today. Cooper, yep. I don't want to waste a scale of time. one to ten. Zach, you're an eight. You're an eight. <laughs> Thank you. And on a scale of one to ten, ten being my favorite, this episode's a ten. Ah, oh, Zach, you've done it again with the perfect transition. How does he do it, folks? Cooper, we're so excited about this one. This is a personal friend of both you and I. We can call we, used we to love call this professor so dearly, but we now call him our friend. That's this right. is Dr. Mike Williams, a professor of history at Dallas Baptist University, and not just a professor, our professor for two semesters, history 1301 I mean, and 1302, our freshman year of college. American church history. Our American church history. That's right. Thank you. We had him, we, he was, he was our, we had him our first semester and our last semester together. together. That is the first class that Zach Funderburk and I had together. And it's where our friendship spawned. We actually told that, that story yeah. of when we were in the dorms and I used my loud booming voice, the gift that it is. <laughs> yeah. Is anyone going to history 1301 with Dr. Williams? And sure enough, my sweet mate, Zachary Funderburk, little yeah, did I not know. Not as loud voice. Yeah. Not as just my sweet, little, sweet, soft sounding sweet mate. That's right. Zach Funderburg said, I am. 
I, I was, it was a little, it was a little deeper. He's matured a lot since then. <laughs> and, and from then on, we walked to class together and we had a class together from that point every semester of college ending in American church history with Dr. I mean, Williams. guys, it was a, it was a, it was a run for the ages. There will be a movie about that one day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That specific moment. Yes. And uh, hopefully yeah. we'll get like a seven-year-old girl to voice act for Zach because <laughs> that would be so funny. That is not true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, this is an incredible episode with a man we love dearly who really made us love history by standing yeah, on tables. He taught us what it looked it, like to love history. Making it animated, making it fun. And we actually studied for these tests. Yeah. last minute we respected we this man too much to not give him a good grade on our yeah, not we just would well. not be caught dead he was he was where it started zach where you and i said look good test good feel good that's right look good, feel good, test suits good. to test day yes that's right yes we literally wear a suit to test day just for him just He's so like, we get a good grade for that man so yeah. more of the story we respect this man a lot that's why we invited yep. him to have on the podcast he's a history buff and i remember him telling us that his favorite president is abraham lincoln a great leader. So that's all we talked yeah. about. We talked about Lincoln's communication, the speeches he gave, how he led during a time of so much turmoil in our country and how, what we can learn from Lincoln today. And it's a fascinating conversation with a lot of dates, a lot of history, but a lot of practical leadership advice that you can apply to wherever you are right now. So yeah. Coop, I say we send it over to a man we love. D Wills. As we call him. Dr. Williams. Without further ado, here's my conversation with the legend himself. Dr. Mike Williams. We love you. <laughs> well, Dr. Williams, thank you so much for doing this and meeting with me. I feel like I'm in class again. Well, I'll uh, try not to be quite as dramatic or traumatic you know maybe for some students in class well i will take my shoes yeah, off because you've known you. You, you know that i do that uh, frequently in class and yeah, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to avoid jumping up on tables and those kinds of things <laughs> yeah, and run, yeah, or running up and down the aisles I, I don't have very far to run in here i may be distracted by the great view but yeah, well uh, just to say it was one of my favorite classes my well you're very kind you. and cooper and i talked about it a lot of how it truly made us love history well that's that's one of my goals, you know, especially with students in freshman history, to me it's not as important, you know, what grades people earn as much as it is just gaining an appreciation for history and a love for history. And, um, you know, when students contact me, as you did a few months ago, about asking for a reading list, yeah. that's one of the things that really as a teacher just kind of thrills you, right. you know, that, that somebody is still interested and they right. want to learn more. And I had a professor when I was an undergraduate, and I never will forget one of the things I did right before I graduated is I went by and saw some of the professors who'd really been important for me in my major. And one of the, the guys was probably the youngest faculty member, maybe at the entire university, um, an Oxford PhD, brilliant guy, not a believer, but uh, a, a brilliant guy. And he told me, we were talking as I was kind of coming by to tell him bye and thanks and sort of thing. He said, one of the great things about history is you always have something you can be interested in and yeah. study. You know, there's so much out there that he, he said it's really, it's a wonderful thing, and I don't remember exactly how to said it, but it's basically it's a wonderful thing when you have a vocation that you love because you're able to study so many of the things that you love. That's a part of it. And so, and I, I don't recall if you've been in my library before, but in my office, my library's wall to wall, yeah. and same way at home. So uh, when I retire, I, I don't know, I may 
my wife may banish me somewhere <laughs> with all my books. I'm not sure about that. So. Uh, I, I understand. And well, while we're on the topic, you, you mentioned I, I emailed you a few months ago asking just for some books or historical sure. readings. Go, what are some of those that you would recommend as we're on the topic? Just in general or... Uh, are, are we historical, historical okay. leadership, anything like yeah, that? Yeah, um, gosh, um, there, th- one of the things that I really try to focus on a lot, and you probably saw this in the list, is I, I really think that biography is a great way to learn history. And so I think, you know, depending on what subject that you're looking at within history, uh, some really good biographies are a great place to start. And, you know, maybe as we go along today talking about Lincoln, I'll mention some of those about Lincoln. But, uh, you know, I, I think... Uh, Anything, one of the things I typically do a lot of times is I read particular authors rather than subjects. And one of the writers that I've really come to appreciate a great deal is Ron Chernow. And Ron Chernow has a string of wonderful biographies that he's written. And, uh, you know, one of his most recent things, uh, you know, is on George Washington. Now, all of his books are really large, (laughs) you know, so you can can really... uh, you, you can really dig into those, and, and in some cases, you know, it takes, in longer books, it takes about 100 pages to really get into it, and you kind of pick up some momentum. Um, anything, you, a popular historian that I really like is David McCullough, and I think I mentioned him yeah, in, in, in the email. His, that His Truman book. Yeah, his Truman book. Have you looked at it yet? Or I you, haven't got to. That is a thick book. Yeah, that's probably the biggest, <laughs> it's probably the biggest one that I would recommend. He won a Pulitzer Prize for it. And it's over a thousand pages, but to now part of this is me. I mean, you know how passionate I am right. and how emotional <laughs> sometimes that I get about history. But when I, in the last few pages of that book, I almost wept. Mm. And part of it's just because the power of the story that he builds around Truman. Part of it is McCullough's just incredible use of the, the English language. And, and part of it was probably just me being <laughs> goofy me, but, but, uh, a lot of people know him because of his John Adams book, which HBO, I think did I mentioned series, to you, did yeah. a series and based it on his yeah. book. I've watched some of those, which are very interesting. Yeah, well. yeah they're really, uh, really good, and his book is, is really good. It's so many of these authors like Chernow and David McCullough, Stephen Ambrose is another one in terms of military history that a lot of people are familiar with more by the uh, HBO miniseries than his actual books. But he was a consultant for those, uh, was also consulting on on Saving Private Ryan. Again, um, really, really talented writer. Doris Kern's good one, the Team of Rivals, yeah. yeah. She's she's a great, great author. it's, you know, those are some in American history that, that I would really recommend. You know, some of my background is also in church history. Yeah. So, you know, there's some, some great books in church history by Mark Knoll, for example. Great. That was our textbook. And yeah, yeah, and, uh, exactly. Yeah, class, that's yeah. right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, his, his writing is, is quite good. And uh, those would just be some that I start with. Like I say, as we talk through Lincoln today a little bit, I may mention some more. Ron White yeah. is a a believer, a Christian, who is an incredible historian as well, had the chance to meet him and, along with some other people, have dinner with him, and it was a you know great experience. I could actually sit by him, and I was like, I was kind of a fanboy, you know. <laughs> I felt like I was kind of being a fanboy because I'd yeah. ask him questions, two of us, but a great Christian guy, 
uh, great scholar, uh, Ron White's really excellent, excellent work on uh, Lincoln and on Grant. Yeah. And so there are others, but, yeah, you know. there's plenty we could go for. We could have done a whole podcast oh, just on the book. Yeah, that's, well, I started to bring some of, of them up here, and I'm like, why would I bring them up here? Nobody's <laughs> going to see this. I'll be yeah. just talking about them, but, yeah. you know, it might help to jog my memory, you right. know, as we talk. But anyway, yeah, yeah those are just some of the ones that, that, you know, I really appreciate. And again, a lot of it, is biography. Mm-hmm. Now, David McCullough, being a popular historian, he's done things that are not straight biographies. Um, for, for example, 1776, I, I read, think was I one, read of, that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah so he's a great storyteller, and Amazing. and so uh, you know, and and that's for me. Um, one of my professors really influenced me a lot in this. Is that biography is a great way to tell the story if you place it within the context of the time. Now. Some people are guilty of not doing that or not understanding the context of the time. But if you do that and you do a good job of understanding that, it's just a great way to introduce people to a subject or to cause people to dig deeper into a subject. And so, and you know, I'm hoping from that list that that yeah. will inspire you to do, to do that, oh, you know, as you go along too. So. And you even gave more than just books. You gave speeches, and some of them were Lincoln's and some of them were George yeah. Washington's Farewell, which is amazing as yeah. well. Yeah. Uh, but there, there's so many different things other than just biographies and books that people can read and get into to know and learn more about history. Yeah, and, you know, the, uh, like I say, you know, I, I really encourage you, and I appreciate you taking me up on this. I really encourage people, you know, uh, and, and the same is true with this podcast. And, you know, if you'd like, I can give my email address right, at course, the end. Um, you know, if you have questions about particular subjects, you know, wh- what would be a good source or what would be some good books to read on this? Uh, I want to always have the answers, but I encourage people to, to send me an email. And, you know, I'd be glad to, to provide that. I've had multiple students who've done that before. I've had people call me from off campus, and they're just looking for a historian at a yeah. university that they trust or whatever. And so I'm glad to do that. I'll give you that, that email address. It's mikew at dbu.edu. Very simple. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if I, any of your listeners at some point, you know, want to contact me about a, a book. I love to talk books. Uh, of course, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you the story. I may have even told this in class. Um but uh, when I moved from the dean's office, after being in the dean's office for 15 years, when I went back to teaching full-time, I moved to a much smaller office. Right. And so I had to do something with all my books. And literally, when I moved in, I had bookshelves, but I hadn't put, you know, I wanted to organize them and put them, they were just stacked all yeah. over the place. And so it took me a couple of weeks just to, I had a pathway that I could get through to, to, to work. And uh, when I finally got them put in place, one of my faculty colleagues came in and uh, he, he looked around. He didn't say anything. He looked around, saw that all my books were in place, and he just said very simply, here you are, surrounded by all your friends. <laughs> and so I feel like my books are my friends, yeah. and I like to introduce people to, to my, my book friends. Great. So no, That's great. It's similar to uh, Thomas Jefferson when he said, I cannot live, live without, without books. books. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I've got a, a paperweight on my desk yeah. that I got, at the, I think, at the National archives gotcha. i think i got a paperweight with that quotation and books on That's there so or yeah or i think it was actually the library of congress so gotcha. we probably need to we could sit and I visit mean, like this all day but lincoln yeah we probably need to talk point. about lincoln at some point yeah well you mentioned context and how important books are to building context for the time we want to get into lincoln we want to understand his leadership his leadership style sure. how he led how he was effective but give us the context kind of tell us the story of what's going on when he's elected president well you know, I think that a lot of people, when we look at history in hindsight, we tend to think, well, everybody knew there was going to be a civil war. Yeah. 
And there, there were certainly were people for decades even. You know, for example, in 1820 with the Missouri Compromise or in 1850 when the Compromise of 1850 was, was organized or during the 1830s, for example, when there was a nullification crisis in South Carolina. Uh, there had been points where people thought that there might be secession. Even One of the things that people have overlooked is while the South had threatened secession in 1820 and at least South Carolina in uh, 18, let's say I guess it would have been 1832, 33, that time period, the South threatened again secession in 1850. In 1814, the Hartford Convention in New England, you may remember we talked about this, some of the New England states actually considered secession because of their opposition to what they call Mr. Madison's War. But even though those things had happened, you know, at, the, at this time period, people, there had always been compromises. There would always been, they'd stepped back from the fire, yeah. you know, so, so to speak. And, and really the thing that pushes the South over the edge is the compromise, uh, is the election of, of Abraham Lincoln in 1860. I mean, that's, that's it. Now, I would suggest, and I'm not the only historian who would say this, but I would suggest that John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry in 1859 was a critical point because one of the things that white Southerners had been so concerned about for so long were slave rebellions. And there had been slave rebellions, and um, particular Southern, in particular Southerners who uh, lived in Virginia remembered, if they were older adults or middle-aged adults, they remembered Nat Turner's revolt yeah. in 1831. And so when John Brown's raid occurs in 1859, and evidence is uncovered very quickly that he's been supported by abolitionists in the North, to them this becomes you know, the ultimate threat that these abolitionists might encourage the enslaved people of the South to rise up and, and literally kill them in their beds because that was the kind of thing that happened in Nat Turner. And one of the incredible contradictions of the white Southern mindset at this time period is the fact that on one hand, white Southerners insisted that their enslaved people all loved them, they were loyal, they were faithful. Some of them, in fact, many of white Southerners considered their enslaved people like children who had to be disciplined, who had to be instructed on how to live, otherwise they were per would perish, a very paternalistic, uh, racist point of view. On one hand they say that, but on the other hand there's this constant fear that these people that they consider childlike mm -hmm. because of their uh, views of white supremacy and so forth, they might plot and come together and kill them. And so there's this, there's this constant contradiction in Southern society oh, our slaves love us, they love us, they love us, we take good care of them, we take care of them when they get old, um, you know, we feed and, and shelter them as they work. And then on the other hand, there's this paranoia about a slave uprising. And then when John Brown comes along and he brings with him rifles yeah. and he captures this armory in Harper's Ferry, he brings with him uh, pikes, which were long, uh, on a long pole, a two-sided blade and, and point. Um, and they see these weapons when John Brown is captured and the, the plot is foiled. This seems to confirm to them, hey, um, we can't stay in the same country any longer. Yeah. 
And then when the Democratic Party splits, when the Democratic Party splits in 1860, it becomes inevitable that the Republican is probably going to win the presidency. They began to, you know, say, well, if a Republican is elected president, that's the final straw. And by the division of the Democratic Party in um, their nominating conventions into northern and southern wings, it's almost a done deal that there's going to be a Republican candidate elected. And so that's, you know, that's the main, those are the two main things. Now, there had been a history of, of events leading up to this point, uh, the publication of Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe, one of, which is one of the most influential books in American history. Maybe the, you probably remember me saying in class, after the Bible, maybe the second most influential book in American history. There have been things like that, and there have been occasions like that. And um, they also, from the almost the very beginning, Southerners had felt especially that the way the Constitution was struggled, that was, was set up, that if there was conflict, if there was struggle, they always had the right to secede, yeah. that they, it was a voluntary union. And what Lincoln and others suggested was, yes, it was a voluntary union, but they'd entered into a contract, that the Constitution was a contract. When they ratified that, the only way that, is, that the Constitution could be dissolved or the union could be dissolved is by mutual agreement, mm-hmm. not just by a state or a group of states saying, where well, we're going to dissolve the union and form our own country. And so those conflict, conflicting ideas about what made up the union certainly were a contributing factor as well. There were, it was almost like, especially the deep south states, compared with, say, the New England states, almost like living in two different countries anyway. There was such a distinct difference. In the North, the Industrial Revolution had begun, had begun to take hold. In the South, they're just little sparks of the Industrial Revolution. And so two different sorts of economies are emerging. And and so there's certainly an, an aspect of that. You know, Christians even said, well, the way the North interprets Scripture is different from us. And one of the things that white Southerners did to defend slavery was that they cited passages in Scripture, and they they believed, or at least they said they believed, that they were being obedient to Scripture by continuing to hold slavery. And obviously, you have evangelical Christians in the North that said, wait, whoa, you know, that's, you know, that's a poor interpretation of Scripture. And so there's a, a theological conflict there. And so there are a lot of factors, but those two main things, Harper's Ferry and the election of 1860, are really the key points. It's fascinating. I've been to Harper's Ferry. When we yeah. went to oh, yeah, Virginia, you did. we went yeah. through West Virginia and went through Harper's Ferry. And it's, uh, it's beautiful out there. It, oh, it's gorgeous. It, you see kind of the split in the Potomac. It's, oh, it's, yeah. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it uh, really is. But I also think that... From us today, we, we're, it's easy for us to look back at Abraham Lincoln as just the stoic figure who's sitting yeah. on this chair looking over the reflection pool. <laughs> right. He's perfect. You know, give us context of who he was and how he was perceived by people in the North and people in the South. Yeah, it's, that's a great question. I mean, you know, we were talking about earlier uh, some of the things we could spend an entire podcast right. talking about, and I think that's one of the questions. You know, we do tend to today— um, and it's not just with Lincoln, with many iconic figures, we tend to forget they were human beings too. You know, Lincoln 
up until 1860 had been a failure in terms of electoral politics. He had only held one office at the national level, and that for two years in the House of Representatives. And you can make a case, even in that case, even though it was at the House of Representatives level, he represented just one district in Illinois. Every other elective office other than the state legislature in Illinois that he had run for or considered he, he had lost. You know, the most famous is when he loses to Stephen Douglas in the 1858 senatorial campaign. There's the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Oh, yeah, which are a big part of that, yeah. And and this part would be part of the thing that Southerners, as they looked on Lincoln, I, I can't recall this specifically, but I would say for the most part, prior to 1860, many white Southerners didn't know who Abraham Lincoln was. Now, he had Southern congressmen that he had served with in Congress that he remained friends with, especially those who were members of the old Whig Party. They knew him personally, but the broader public, until the Lincoln-Douglas debates come along, probably don't have a single idea about who this this raw-boned, yeah. tall, lanky lawyer from, from Illinois, what he's all about. And in fact, many Northerners really didn't. But there, uh, those Lincoln-Douglas debates were really what propelled him to the national stage. And it was because at that point, Stephen Douglas was considered kind of a perennial presidential candidate. He was considered one of the greatest speakers in terms of public oratory. Um, he had a lot of connections within the Democratic Party. And had in some cases, there had been a fight within the Democratic Party about who was going to be the dominant figure. And so so people were very familiar with Stephen Douglas. Even more of the general public would have been familiar with Stephen Douglas. But nobody really knew Abraham Lincoln, but it's those debates. And then after those debates, uh, in 1860, uh, Abraham Lincoln was invited to deliver a speech at Cooper Union in New York, which was a place that was built for public lectures, for debates, these kind of things in in New York City. And he was basically invited back east by some uh, leading Eastern Republicans because of what he had done in the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And by the way, we call them the Lincoln-Douglas debates today. At that time, they were called the Douglas-Lincoln debates because Douglas was a better known figure. And and that speech at Cooper Union, in fact, there's a book by Harold Holzer, uh, H-O-L-Z-E-R, uh, called, uh, the, it's uh, Lincoln at Cooper Union, The Speech That Made Lincoln President, I think is the title of it. And, you know, he makes this speech and it just blows everybody away. And one of the things that he says at the very end is he says, let us, and I don't remember the exact quotation, but this is pretty close, let us remember that right makes might. And, you know, what he's saying is we are in the right about this, this issue of slavery. And it is that, that right, that correctness, that will ultimately be what is mighty. And, um, you know, he, he really sort of knocks everyone's socks off. And, and I, that is a little bit of a pun. You wouldn't know that. Most people wouldn't know that. One of the things that uh, Lincoln did was he had a suit made especially for this speech, but because of his really long legs and long arms, it didn't look like it fit very well. And uh, there were times that Lincoln spoke, and 
what we would call back in my day I don't know you guys probably don't say this today high water pants uh-huh. his oh, yeah. his you know they could see his uh, his socks yeah. and so when I said that you know knock their socks off I was <laughs> a little little play on words there but right. but that really um, you, you know that's really the the thing that propels him to the national consciousness and um, and then you know when he's elected then that's when Things really start to come apart. I mean, it's which is fascinating because I don't how to in my mind on paper Lincoln's not your ideal candidate at the time because he, he's a as you said he's a failure in elected politics. He's only been a congressman, and so it's really that speech plus the debates that propel him to yeah. be the candidate. How does he win the nomination? He well, he is in in many ways he is the least controversial figure, and you, you have to remember. And you probably remember this from class. Lincoln, was, the, the Republican Party was a brand new party. It had really only been formed about 1854, 1856. And it is the, the Kansas-Nebraska Act that Stephen Douglas promoted, and we didn't really have time to get into all that, that had led to the formation of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's 1854, 1856, kind of that time frame. The Whig Party had dissolved, and for, the Whig Party had been part of the national political equation for over 20 years. Lincoln himself was a Whig. His hero was Henry Clay, who was one of the fathers of the, the Whig Party. And so um, this is very much a new party, and in some regards, Lincoln was a little bit late to the dance. He kept holding out the idea that the Whigs could still survive, and some of the early founders, if you will, of the Republican Party were, were William Seward and Solomon Chase, yeah. and who despised each other. Right. <laughs> and We'll get to that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, these, the Republican Party was such a new party that all the Chase people opposed Seward. All the Seward people opposed Chase, and then there are other candidates. Simon Cameron is kind of a favorite son candidate from from Pennsylvania. Fortunately, everybody knew that he had his hands in the till, and yeah. it was a bit of a corrupt figure. Uh, Edward Bates, who um, was from Missouri, yeah. um, was a possible candidate, but he was the oldest of the possible candidates, and also he had been tainted somewhat by dabbling with what was called the Know Nothing Party. Yeah which made him just um, an impossible choice for the German-Americans who were part of the the Republican Party. And so a lot of this is just because each of these factions within the Republican Party consider Lincoln the uh, best option other than their own candidate. And uh, in fact, another part of this component is that Lincoln had a tremendous support team, primarily people from Illinois, like his friend David Davis um, and and others, who were sort of his floor managers at the convention. And basically what they did was they went to, and in those days it was was common in nominating conventions for uh, certain states, if they had a respected political figure from their home state, on the first ballot, they would put that person forth, kind of as what was called a favorite son candidate. And the Lincoln floor managers, like David Davis, and I wish I could think of some of the other names right now, but I'm I'm drawing a little bit of a a blank on that. But they circulate in the convention, and they say, okay, we understand that you're going to vote 
Indiana, perhaps you're going to present Caleb Smith yeah. as your candidate, your favorite son candidate. It was just kind of a way for people to honor. And the other thing was, who knows, they might emerge as a compromise candidate yeah. at some point. But they went around and they said, you know, on after the first ballot, if your candidate is no longer in the race, support our guy. And that's simplifying it, but that was basically what they said. They said that to the Pennsylvania delegation. They said that to the Indiana delegation. And so he had these astute people who were close personal friends in, in many cases who were circulating among the delegates and saying, you know, remember our guy. And, um, you know, the Chase supporters who hold out hope that their candidate is going to be the, the nominee, when they see he's not, they are not going to support Seward. I mean, that's going to be their last option, and so they throw their support behind Lincoln. The Bates people from Missouri and the border states who are Republican, you know, they consider Seward and Chase too extreme on the issue, and Lincoln is seen more as a moderate, and so that's really how it happens. He's he's really, in in many ways, uh, the nominee because he's the least controversial or... uh, in some cases, really the least well-known. Yeah, it's really fate, kind of the hand of God. God knew you, that's what America yeah, I mean, needed at the time. If we well, were it. We, we have to, you know, we as historians, we have to say, here are the reasons right, why. Right. But ultimately, you know, it looks like, I mean, I get good, you know, I'm getting goosebumps right yeah. now, you know, that this is, this is God's hand, you know. Um, there's a, a great quotation, and I, I keep this on my desk, but I can't remember, ex- I think David Davis was one of the people involved in this. And it may have been Carl Schurz, who was a, a German-American um, political leader, one of the, the leaders in the Republican Party. He wrote, I believe it was a judge, after, the, after Lincoln had been nominated. And he said this very simply. He said, while we may have done, uh, how did he say it? It's something to the effect, he says, he ends up saying, I can't remember exactly what it is. Now, I've got it on my desk. I see it all the time. But he basically says, while we could have done something else, we might not have ever done a better thing than what we did. Yeah. He recognized early on that Lincoln was a good man. Yeah. You know, he was a good man. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that you have to consider when you consider Lincoln is his ability to overcome adversity yeah. in his life. And um, he certainly faced a lot of adversity during the Civil War. And, you know, his having been able to overcome adversity was what the nation needed during these very adverse times. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, it's a good thing he was there. He was there when the country needed him the worst. And, you know, I would even go as far as saying when the world needed him the worst. Um, So, and and that, you know, if you take that too far, it becomes very triumphalistic, you know. But, you know, it, he just has that level of significance and importance yeah. to the story, of the, not just the story of the United States, but the story of the world. Yeah, and it, that's what kind of creates the legend of Abraham Lincoln, who he, how we see him today. You know, I was talking about the Lincoln Memorial. but So he goes through this. He, he's the nomination. Here he's the nominee. 1860, he's elected president. He takes the long train from Springfield, <laughs> Illinois, to, right. to D.C. To, to do the job. What's the what's the world like? How long does it take for the secession to take place? Yeah. What is that like? Well, um, 
in those days, inauguration didn't occur until March. March, March and 4th. So, right? yeah. yeah, and and so there's this huge time lag between the election, the very first of November, until March the 4th. That's been one of the great changes to the electoral process to move that to the January, to January. but it's not until the Great Depression yeah. that that actually occurs. And so there's this, this waiting period, and again, there's been some very fine scholarship done on the, this waiting period, and Lincoln made very, very few statements, public statements, during this time period. And he basically said, the, the reason I'm not doing this, what I've said in the past is out there. My position has not changed. And one of the things that he was consistent in saying through the election, prior to the election, uh, after the election was, we are not going to interfere with slavery where it exists. But we are not going to allow slavery to spread to the territories. And that, for many Southerners, you know, he meant that to say we're going to uphold the Constitution as it stands, and abolitionists hated that. I mean, they were Wendell Phillips, Frederick Douglass, people like this were extremely critical uh, of Lincoln in that regard, saying, you know, we're not going to interfere with slavery where it exists because they wanted slavery done away with immediately. There were immediate abolitionists. William Lloyd Garrison is another one, and and uh, Lincoln says we're not going to interfere with slavery where it exists, we're going to uphold the Constitution, but we are not going to allow slavery to spread. And for white Southerners, they understood that eventually that meant the death of slavery. That's in order for slavery to continue to exist, they had to be able to expand. And some of that was agricultural, some of it was political, um, and the other part of it was there's a specter that hangs over their heads that if slavery is not allowed to expand and if slavery does die, then what are we going to do with these millions of African Americans living in our midst? How are they going to be handled? How are they going to be assimilated? Or how are they going to be controlled if we don't have slavery? And so they knew that, you know, they knew that. Other people who didn't know that they considered, in fact, the term that they used for Lincoln was that he was a black Republican. And that meant that he was in favor of doing away with slavery. Mm. And for, for Southerners, this was, you know, this was an intolerable type of situation. Yeah. So that, that really, and, and during that time, Lincoln uses the time, he's not making these public pronouncements, he's right. using his time to assemble his cabinet. And... Um, you know, the, the assembly of his cabinet is one of the really amazing parts of this story, as well as one of the, the points that you have to really see Lincoln, the master politician at work. Yeah. And so he's assembling his cabinet. He's, de- you know, from the very beginning, he deals from, with conflict right. within the, in the cabinet, even during the selection process. And he is listening to his advisors, but at the same time, he's trying to mold a cabinet that he feels like he can work with. And um, he wants the best, sorry, ladies, but he wants the best men for the job. And uh, even if that means putting some of his strongest opponents in that that cabinet. And, you know, I think that says, you know, some people look at that and say, well, that's a sign of weakness because he doesn't feel like he can do the task. It's really a sign of strength 
because he, he realizes if this, is, if this country is going to survive during this time of possible crisis, and remember, even in March, there has been, by, by the time of the inauguration, seven states have seceded, and they have already formed the Confederacy. But even at this point, there's still this hope. Maybe we can reach a compromise. Maybe there's something that we can do to, to stave off war. And Lincoln, especially through the early stages of the war, really hoped that a unionist element within the South would, in essence, form what we would call today an internal coup d'etat yeah. to overthrow the rebellion from within. And he held out that hope really through the first year, and now you could almost say even almost the first two years of the war. And so it's not a done deal in March right. when he's inaugurated. And he says in his first inaugural address, he says, into your hands, my dissatisfied countrymen. You know, I leave, whatever he says, I leave this decision. Or, you know, he basically puts the ball in their court. He says, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're not going to do. Now the ball's in your court. And ultimately what happens is in April, the Confederate troops uh, representing seven states, the Deep South states plus Texas, uh, bombard Fort Sumter, and it begins. Yeah. And you mentioned in there the team of rivals. I think that's such a yeah. huge, important part of Lincoln's leadership and what, something we want to focus on. Sure. And you mentioned Seward, Chase, and Bates, which I can't think are kind of the big three. Yeah. Running against him in, 19, or in 1860, He's the he's the president, and now he's there on their cabinet. And, yeah. and to us today, sounds crazy. Yeah, and you know, typically presidents will surround themselves with people who agree with them or people who have supported them yeah. in the past. Um, and you know, in, in fact, in recent history, um, in 2008, when uh, President Obama was elected, he referred to that book yeah. as being influential on him, and the reason why he chose Hillary Clinton as his Secretary of State, which in many, pe many people's minds would be kind of the, the major seat on the cabinet. He pointed to that, to Lincoln's example as to why he had chosen Hillary Clinton to be his Secretary of State, even though she had been his opponent for yeah. the Democratic nomination. So I think that shows that, you know, uh, even today, when someone does something like that, we realize what a huge difference that is from what typically takes place. And Lincoln was doing something that, you know, yeah. most people would be afraid to do. Well, he did that. People who opposed him. But then there's also a story that came to mind that Dave McCullough, I think I heard him tell of Harry Truman. I think he, he was yeah. uh, Douglas MacArthur, I believe. Yeah. yeah. His secretary of state, people were saying, Mr. Truman, Mr. President, you should not do that because people are going to start wanting him to be president instead of you. Yeah. And to his responses, that's the kind of people I want on my yeah. staff. Well, in MacArthur's case, he was a general. Now, he didn't become yes. a cabinet member. But uh, you may be thinking about George Marshall, Marshall. who that's became the Secretary of State. And Truman, to his credit, saw, you know, that the kind of individual that Marshall was, the quality of character that existed there. And... Uh, you know, again, it shows, it says a great deal about a leader when they're confident enough in themselves that they can surround themselves with other strong leaders, other capable people, people not necessarily people who will agree with everything they say. They're confident enough to do that and yet humble enough to realize they can't do it all yeah. and that they need people like that around them. And, you know, one of the things that I 
try to really stress, and even back when I was in administration, I think it's important for leaders, male or female, uh, not to surround themselves with just what we would call today yes men or yes women. Um, You really, I think leaders today, whether it's in politics or on a church staff or in a business or in a school, that they have people who will, yes, follow their leadership and yes, who are capable and have the qualifications, but that also will hold the leaders accountable. And to, to be the kind of person who'll say, well, you know, if we decide to do this, I'll support it, but I don't think it's the right thing to do. And, you know, again, a good leader will listen to that. Doesn't mean that he or she has to do what the person says. We see Lincoln several times during his presidency not doing what members of his cabinet or other leaders in the Republican Party or leaders of the abolitionist movement, but he listens. And that, that to me, is, it speaks volumes about him, is that he is willing to, to listen. And, that, for example, he was ready in the summer of 1862 to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. Yeah. But when he threw that forward in front of his cabinet, they all agreed, yeah, we need to do this. But they also said, and Seward was one of the leading people who said this, now's not the time. If we do it now, it's going to look like an act of desperation. And so Lincoln listened, he heard that, and he waited until the, after the Battle of Antietam. Mm-hmm. And we went to Antietam too. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, great place. Yeah. And uh, we take our PhD students here every summer uh, as well. And uh, James McPherson in his book uh, on Antietam calls it the crossroads of freedom because it is that Union victory at Antietam repelling the Confederate, uh, the Confederate invasion of the North that allows Lincoln to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. And, uh, you know, and he goes to his cabinet at that point after Antietam, and he says to them, um, I, and this again is not an exact quote, he basically said, I made a deal with God that if this invasion were repelled, that it would be the time to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. And it's a good thing he did because uh, after Antietam in early December, the Union Army of Potomac suffered terrible, terrible loss at Fredericksburg. And if he had waited until later, he might not have issued the Emancipation Proclamation in 1862. He might have waited even longer. And in fact, when the Union forces in Tennessee won a victory around Christmas, end of the year, it's actually right after Christmas, and then uh, right at the start of 1863 to a place called Stones River, Lincoln actually sends a telegram to the general that commanded Union forces and said, thanks for doing this. We'll always remember because if he had issued the Emancipation Proclamation after Fredericksburg, it would have looked like an act of desperation. But by coming after Antietam and then Rosecrans, the general at, at Stones River, wins this victory. And Lincoln said he'd never forget it, and he, he, he remembered it. And, of course, he, the proclamation becomes official on January 1st, 1863, and uh, Lincoln signs it into law after shaking hundreds. I don't know if you remember the story, but after shaking yeah. hundreds of hands yeah. and uh, because it was common in those days on the first day of the year for the White House to be thrown up to visitors. We can't that even imagine that today. That you know, uh, can't even imagine that today. But people came in and he greeted every one of them and shook their hands. Well, by the time he finished, his hand was swollen. Mm. 
And when it came time for him to sign the Emancipation Proclamation, he started to sign, and then he stopped, and he said, I, I need to make sure my signature is steady because he, do, he said, I don't want anyone to think that I faltered yeah. at that moment. And so he waited for a few minutes, kind of got his signing hand under control, massaged it or whatever he did, and then he wrote it in a very clear hand. That, that is fascinating. And uh, so anyway, um, those, that cabinet was really, really important to him to, in terms of providing feedback. He didn't always listen to it. Sometimes he did. There was a lot of controversy and conflict within the cabinet, especially between Seward and Chase. Um, at the beginning, one of the great things, and I think this may be McCullough who actually says this, and Doris Kearns Goodwin certainly does and her team of rivals, uh, before Lincoln began his administration, virtually every man in his cabinet believed that they were the better man. Yeah. Within a short time, William Seward was writing to his wife, the president is the best man among us. Mm-hmm. Now, Chase always believed that he could still Right. do a better job than Lincoln, but all the rest of them, Gideon Wells, Edward Bates, um, later on when he has to replace Stan- Simon Cameron as Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, you know, eventually, um, you know, they all come to see, besides Chase, all come to see, you know, that that Lincoln is the best among them. It's yeah, amazing. I'm, I'm now regretting making these all in one episode. I feel like we could do this for hours and hours, but we have to move on to communication. Sure, sure. We know the rivals is so important. And sure. The, the things that he did, even timing, it's so yeah. important for leaders to find the right timing to announce something, to say something. Sure. So important. But communication is also important. Sure. Obviously, Lincoln was an amazing speaker, and two of his most famous, his second inaugural and the Gettysburg Address, yeah. are some that stand out. What, what stands out to you about Lincoln's communication? Gosh, there's so much here, too. You know, we could, again, we could just do an entire episode on, on Lincoln's speaking. And, uh, you know, really, the, the two that people point to are the Gettysburg Address and the second inaugural address. And one of the things that really stands out to me every time I look at them is how short they were. Mm. And I think most of us, and I'm guilty of this, I mean, you've been in my class, so you know I keep you until the, <laughs> the time. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, if it's a 50-minute class, it's going to last 50 minutes and maybe 51 or 52. Right. But the brevity of these is just absolutely incredible. Mm. You know, just a couple of minutes. The, the, the Gettysburg Address is about two and a half minutes long. Second Inaugural Address is not very much longer than that. Yeah. And so the brevity, and I think what it tells us about communication is that you don't have to, to speak for a long time. It's more important what you say in the time that How you have. You are, yeah. Exactly. And, uh, you know, there's that element in both of these key addresses. The other thing is people don't realize um, Lincoln spent a great deal of time in preparation of his speeches, even his short speeches. People for a long time thought that the Gettysburg Address was just kind of an extemporaneous speech that he had jotted down on the train uh, before Gettysburg, and that's not true. You know, he he really, uh, it was something that he spent a lot of thought when he made speeches. He put a lot of preparation into it. The speech that I mentioned before at Cooper Union, the, the speech that made Lincoln president, hours and hours of preparation. And he, he does the same thing with the Gettysburg Address and with the, the inaugural address. He spends a lot of time. He realizes what I'm about to say is really important. Yeah. And the Gettysburg Address was really just kind of a, it was more of a dedication than it was an actual speech. As you remember, I'm right. sure, the real speaker of the day, Edward Edwards, spoke about two hours mm. 
as composed to two and a half as opposed to two and a half minutes. Um, and yet Edward Edward Everett realized after it was over that Lincoln had said far more in two and a half minutes than he had said in two hours. And he wrote Lincoln a, ne- a note to that effect. Now Lincoln could be his own self, his worst critic. And there are stories that after he finished the Gettysburg Address, he he didn't think that it would be regarded that highly. In fact, he says in the speech itself, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here. And every time I read the Gettysburg Address, and it's something that typically I'll do in my classes and and that I do when we're on site in Gettysburg with the, the PhD students, I always read the Gettysburg Address. And every time I read that statement, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here. And now, most people remember the speech. They don't even know that there was a battle at Gettysburg. Right. But to me, that the irony of that is pretty incredible. And it's the same way with the Secular Inaugural Address. I think the depth and the simplicity, um, and you can, again, this as a, someone who teaches and someone who, who speaks in churches and and in, in different types of of situations, it demonstrates to me that you can be deep and simple, that you don't have to use a lot of flowery phrases or a lot of of complex sentences that um, to communicate depth. And I think part of that is because there is a great deal of transparency in Lincoln Mm -hmm. as a leader. Um, Now, he can be, you know, he, he's accused of being a lawyer. In yeah, fact, you know, there, there are some of his opponents, both before and during the Civil War, who accuse him of using a lawyer's dodge. Is that what they would say? This is just a lawyer trying to talk his way around something. But Lincoln was very, very transparent, and especially in the Gettysburg Address, and even more so in the Second Inaugural Address. You can really sense in the Second Inaugural Address, at least for me, um, and, but I think other historians would, would say this as well, that there is a, a, a depth of feeling that is there. And you see that humility come forward. Um, and, and the humility, I think, contributes to the brevity. But, you know, he, he says uh, in the second inaugural address, he says, um, you know, we believe that we're right, but judge not lest you be judged. Mm-hmm is what ancient, I think he says ancient words tell us or yeah. something along those lines. That was one of the phrases he would use when he'd quote the Bible. And so there's there's a humility there. And with the Secular Inaugural Address, there is this element of forgiveness and this understanding that the Civil War has a greater purpose even than preserving the Union and liberating four million African-American slaves, it, it's, uh, I mean, he, he says in Gettysburg Address, it symbolizes a new birth of freedom. Mm-hmm. And he, he demonstrates that in the Second Inaugural Address, and, and he does so by saying, you know, here's what we've done, here's why perhaps God willed this. You know, yeah. he says, you know, God, you know, if God willed that every uh, drop of blood drawn with the lash is repaid with uh, blood drawn from the sword, by the right. sword, or something like that. Um, you know, he, he sees that there, and but then he says, you know, ultimately we have to care for the widow and the orphan and for those who have borne the burden of this fight. And, you know, he is in this incredible moment that could have been, I mean, the Union was on the verge of victory. Everybody knows that. 
um, even though there are some who say, well, it could still go bad or it could still be changed like John Wilkes Booth. Right, yeah. And Booth was in the audience that day. Everybody knows that it's ending. He could have celebrated, Mm -hmm. but it's very somber. It's very humble. And there is this... um, this compassion that he is demonstrating toward the formerly enslaved people, he realizes, you know, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to change things, but but at the same time, we've got to take care of people who are the innocents in this struggle. And to me, you know, and and Ron White, whom I mentioned earlier, has written a little book. It's not very long, probably two hundred fifty pages. It's called Lincoln's Greatest Speech. And it's about the second inaugural address, and th- those are the kind of things that he gets into. And so those are the things I think, you know, transparency, brevity, depth, um, the uh, looking for, uh, looking beyond the immediate listeners towards those who might hear that afterwards. To, to me, the, all those things are, are what make him such an effective communicator. Um, I think people would say, even during his time period, we think, you know, we typically think that Lincoln has this deep, melodious voice, pretty high-pitched, yeah. almost a piercing kind of voice, as ways described. He had learned how to speak out on the stump in campaigning in the West. Yeah. There are no microphones at this yeah. time. And so he knew that if he spoke, if he used deep voice and all this sort of stuff, unnaturally, he wouldn't be able to, his, his voice would not hold up. Or wouldn't be heard and um, it tells us it's not necessarily having this you know it's voice mellowed in yeah yeah yeah, yeah this voice mellowed in oak kind of thing uh, it, it's more the content yeah. you know it's the content and it's the spirit behind the content and I think this is one of the things that you see with a lot of people Frederick Douglass for example when the two or three times that he met with Lincoln he was struck with struck with Lincoln's humility and also with uh, Lincoln's spirit that, that, he, that he was different. He, you know, for example, he emerges from one of the meetings and he's amazed because he said Lincoln treated him as if he were any other man. He wasn't influenced by the color of his skin. He treated him just like he was any, and there's a sincerity there, a genuineness, and that would be one of the things that I would say to leaders is be yourself, be genuine. Don't feel like you have to, to put on ears or to yeah. be some, I mean, my goodness, people initially didn't respect Lincoln and even later on didn't respect Lincoln because they saw him kind of as a country bumpkin. Right. But he was genuine. He was real. And, uh, you know, people frequently who were, especially if they were close to them or people who were very sensitive, saw that authenticity. Now, that's not to say that he's perfect. I mean, he's a politician. He's an imperfect human being, but um, they, they see that humility and that sincerity, and I think that goes a long way. And so that would be one of the things I would say to, to leaders today is, and you know, really be yourself. And you see some of the great leaders in history, like what you mentioned Truman, you know, has that, you know, buck stops here sort of mentality. Right. And, uh, you know, there are others, uh, you know, in, in more recent times, I think you— you know, see uh, leaders who, you know, George Bush, George W. Bush, President Bush, would make fun of his his yeah, speech and, you know, the Bushisms. Yeah, the misunderstanding. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, I think that is kind of a, a, a quality of humility, right. uh, being able to laugh at yourself, yeah. you know. And Lincoln constantly made fun of himself. 
you know, um, you know, he said uh, one of the things people accused him of as a lawyer was being two-faced. And he says, at least on one occasion, he says, "Does it has it ever dawned on you if I ever had a if I had a face besides this one, why I wouldn't wear it instead yeah. of this one?" You know, making a yeah. play on the fact that he wasn't the most handsome right. guy in the world. And so I think that's yeah. that being yourself. And so that's one of the things I would say. You know, is yeah. to be authentic, be sincere, and I think that's why he's so effective. Yeah. And we'll use that for our, what you'd give to your 20-year-old self. Just be yourself. And it's one yeah. of the biggest things you can take from, from Lincoln. Is, uh, yeah, so be, be yourself and, and you know, don't be afraid to, to be a learner. Yeah. Lincoln was constantly learning as president. He knew that he didn't understand military tactics right. and strategy. So he, he sent either John Hay or John Nicolay to the Library of Congress to check out books for him yeah. so that he could read and study. And, you know, I, I think that's one of the things that, you know, younger leaders need to say, you know, that lifelong learning needs to be something that, that makes, that becomes a goal. I mean, you know, that's something I try to do even today is, and I'm certainly not a young leader, um, keep learning, be yourself, keep learning, um, you know, have an attitude, a spirit of humility, um, learn how to laugh at yourself, yeah. you know, those kinds of things are things that I really think are so significant for, for Abraham Lincoln. And gosh, we could go on and on about this. I know, we're out, uh, I know we're out of time here, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've really appreciated the opportunity to, to do this with you, Zach, and appreciate what you and, and Cooper are doing with yeah. these uh, podcasts. I thought those two freshman guys in the front row of your class would, would be having you on a podcast. Oh, I, I don't know about – well, I probably – podcasts were around at that time. They yeah. probably just weren't as big a deal at that point. time, but – I always can recognize uh, good students when I see them, and, and certainly you, you two guys are, are two of the students that I, I recognized as good students. Now, since Cooper's not here, I can pick on him yes, and say, you know, Co- Co- Cooper was a little bit goofy, you know, as a freshman, you know. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he was a, kind of a, a little uh, – but he was being himself, right? He was. You know, Cooper, he's, that is something you learned from Cooper. No one is himself more than Cooper. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I love that, you know, and, and I always say uh, – you know, especially teaching at DBU in a Christian institution, I, I like people that are a little different. They're not right. just cookie cutter Christians <laughs> yeah, or, or cookie cookie cutter uh, young leaders or whatever it might be. Yeah. But um, super proud of you guys, and just keep up the good work. And if I can ever help you all again, I'm you sure know, let me know. I mean, like so, any one of these on Lincoln, we could yeah. spend you know a, a, an hour or an episode just alone on one itself. And certainly, history has so many great examples. Mm-hmm of what uh, what we can learn from history and uh, you know there are numerous examples of, uh, of people who've learned from history and yeah. and that's what we're trying to do learn from the people who have gone before us and thank you for taking us down well, that journey and th- please email Dr. Williams any questions you have <laughs> yeah. reach out to him yeah it's mikew at dbu.edu no, my students know that uh, as they said on an evaluation before that uh, answer email uh, in the blink of an eye, and I always say, and yes, I can leap tall buildings with a single bound and faster than a speeding bullet. Yeah. But uh, I will try to answer those emails if you're if you're interested in, in learning more and if you're interested in reading more. That's always exciting for me. Of course. Well, Dr. Williams, thank you so much for your time. Th- thank you so much, Zach.